from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you um, again for your word and for all that you have revealed about yourself and your ways and your will. And we know, God, that apart from you, that we could never measure up to who you are. We could never accurately reflect you. But you are the origin of your own image, God, and you have made us in your image. And I pray that, that we would just um, yield to you, God, that you would reflect yourself through us and that this world would see the light of Christ, especially at this time of year when we celebrate the one who is the light of the world who has come into this world. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we're coming to the end of this um, first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has been giving um, six different statements where he is saying, you have heard that it is said, but I say to you. He is not adding to Scripture. He's expounding on what the Old Testament has always meant. And he's also giving us the constitution for his kingdom. And so we can see this is how that those who are his people ought to live while in this world, because these things are all true of himself. And this last paragraph here is about how we relate to our enemies. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That actually is not in the Bible, that last part, hate your enemy. It's one of those verses like um, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in your Bible. And so this was something that was added to Scripture. That's why in your Bibles it's not capitalized and hate your enemy. The first part is love your neighbor. The second part, hate your enemy, is where the Pharisees had gone and they would said you're fully justified to hate your enemy. And God saying... That's not the way it is. I don't know how old you were when you first um, realized that some people are difficult to love and there's some people who just play the enemy. It seems like they think that's their spiritual gift. Um, I was probably, I don't know, I think maybe 10 or 11 years old when I realized not all people can you get along with. Some people are just mean and, and out to get you, it seems like. There's different ways that we respond to enemies. Um, sometimes enmity um, it, how we respond to it can be in heat, and sometimes it's, it can be um, served up cold. Um, um, the heat um, is always exciting um, to see and be a part of. If you're on that side of it, you kind of feel like you're getting it all out there, and, you know, and, and, and um, it can be um, um, quite entertaining. Um, but it's not a good thing to just, to, just to blast off on people. And serving up your hatred toward your enemy cold is not much better. I will never forget when I was in college and I was an RA my senior year, 
the dean of men came to me and says, Charlie, there's a problem in your dorm between two roommates and you need to address it. And he says, you got two guys there that, that aren't talking to each other and it's the one guy that's the problem. I don't know how he knew all that. So I took the guy out to lunch in the cafeteria and we need to talk. And so I was having lunch with him and said, tell me about your roommate. How are things going? Oh, they're great. Really? Things are great. Great. Anything you'd change? Nope. Wouldn't change a thing. And, and I said, well, well really, I, I've heard there's problems. No, nope, no problems. And I said, well, when was the last time you talked to your roommate? It's been a while. And I said, well, what's a while? A couple days, a couple weeks? Probably been a couple months now since I last talked to him. Things are great. Just perfect. <laughs> See, that's, that's hatred for your enemy served up cold. And I said, what has he done to you? Nothing. So why do, you, why do you have a problem with him? Because he's smart, he doesn't have to study, and I have to study hard, he doesn't have to study, and I just hate it. Wow. Didn't even, didn't even want to recognize that there was a problem. We are to love our neighbor. We all get it. But to love our enemy, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So then who is your enemy? We know that one time Jesus was asked, who is your neighbor? And, but who is your enemy? And this is where none of us like to recognize that we have people that we are at enmity with. I came across one quote and it said, an enemy is any person who elicits anger, hatred, or retaliation. That is an enemy. You have an enemy if there's somebody in your life that elicits anger, hatred, or retaliation from you. This last week, I've been reminded that I have a couple of people that would fall into that category in my life. And I don't like to admit it, but it is true. What are the enemy's actions and tactics? I went through and just looked up in the Psalms, because David had a lot to say about enemies in the, in the Psalms, if you recall. Of David's Psalms, the ones that he wrote, the vast majority, something like 80% of the Psalms that David wrote, maybe 90%, centered around either Saul's persecution of him or Absalom's persecution of him. And so that persecution um, was, was something that, that deeply affected him, and he, he wrote many of his Psalms in that context. Enemies are, according to these psalms, revengeful. They rejoice when we are shaken. They hate us, Psalm 18:7, with violent hatred, Psalm 25:19, without cause, Psalm 35:19. The enemy shouts in triumph over us. They oppress, they reproach and they revile. They speak evil and long for our death. The enemy uses our name as a curse. They afflict our souls. Jesus spoke about being persecuted in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of this chapter, and he spoke about those who, who persecute you for the sake of righteousness, and they revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. What is to be our response? to evil and the evildoer. 
Paul had a lot to say about this in Romans 12. And in Romans 12, 9, he says, abhor evil. So that's okay to hate evil. It's not okay to hate the evildoer. To hate evil. Paul says, do not repay evil with good. I'm sorry, do not repay evil with evil. He does say repay evil. That's the next verse. Overcome evil with good. Man, I tell you, I was just sitting here before I came up, and I don't know why it came to mind, but when I was in junior high, um, um, a friend of mine at another church that we used to attend invited me to go with their church youth group to, um, to Houston, from Corpus Christi to Houston, to Astroworld. And, and so we, I went, and we rode a bus up there, and my friend had a friend that just, I, I, who just decided he hated me. I'd never laid eyes on the kid until that day. And he harassed me on that entire um, trip from Corpus to Houston. He just constantly picking at me, harassing me. I'm going, what have I done to this kid? I've never seen him before. And so then we went into a big cafeteria somewhere to eat. And, and, um, and the kid sat at my table with this other boy and just, again, just constantly just wouldn't let go. He just kept hammering away at me, just giving me all kinds of grief. And so the kid went up to go to the bathroom and he had he'd eaten his whole lunch except for his big um, strawberry pie, a piece of strawberry pie he had there. And I said, I'm done with this. And I took the Tabasco sauce and I just saturated that, that, those strawberries with Tabasco sauce. And then he had a glass of water sitting there and I made that look like tomato um, soup. And I just, just put, poured the rest of the Tabasco sauce in that. And he came back from the bathroom and sat down and took the biggest strawberry and put it in his mouth. And I'm just waiting, just grinning. And then he, um, he, his head about exploded, so he grabbed for his water and drank that. And the kid literally jumped up, went screaming through the restaurant to the bathroom trying to get his head under the water. That's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you are not to repay evil with evil. You are not... Um, you are to overcome evil with good, Paul says. We are not to rejoice when our enemy falls. Jesus says, love and pray for your enemies. Proverbs 25, 21 and Romans 12, 20 says, meet his needs. If he is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. There are a number of things that Scripture also speaks about a perspective that we are to maintain when there are people that we are at enmity with. One is Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? The enemy is not our whole world. It feels like that at times when you can't escape them. But if God is for us, who can be against us? We need to realize that our greatest enemy is the devil. He is our adversary. In fact, that is one of his names, is adversary, 1 Peter 5, 8. And that means that the battle is not just purely flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle, and we need to never lose sight of that. Ephesians 6, 12, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this darkness. It's important for us to know that God, sometimes God raises up enemies in order to correct us and discipline us. 
This was the story of Solomon when he came to the end of his life and he'd allowed his many wives to corrupt his heart and turn his heart away from the Lord. And so God began raising up one enemy after another. And the enemies um, had legitimate problems, accusations, faults um, with Solomon. But God didn't raise up the enemies to address shortcomings in Solomon's life. God raised up the enemies in order to bring Solomon back to himself, to purify his heart. We can get too focused on the accusations um, of the enemy, and many times those accusations will be false. Jesus says they falsely accuse you. And we can try to correct the falsehoods, correct the false statements, when God is not going to even allow that to happen. And we waste so much time and emotional energy trying to correct what is false when we maybe should be asking, Lord, what are you wanting to do in my life through this person? I've found that many times that the only thing that God wants to do is not deliver me from the enemy, but to deliver me from self-righteousness, from pride. And he's using that enemy to humble me and to keep me dependent upon him. And in that sense, the enemy is God's tool. Satan uses enemies as well to distract us, to provoke us to anger, to provoke us to revenge, to self-pity, despair, self-righteousness, and self-defensiveness, basically to get us to focus on self. We need to keep perspective that God will punish evil. Evil is not going to go unpunished. It may in this world, we live in a world of injustice, but God is just, and the day will come when he will punish evil. It's important for us to know that the reason that God tells us to love our enemies is because God is love, and he loves his enemies. This is so important. For most of us, I think especially those, if you come to this church, um, this is not a problem. It's not even a, it's no, there's no tension here. When you hear God loves his enemies, therefore we love our enemies. God is love and he loves all. But if you have any theological awareness of what's going on today, you know that is not what many people today affirm. They would say that God is just toward all but they would not say that God loves all. One very, very prominent theologian and apologist for the Christian faith went to be with the Lord not long ago, and he very openly, in the last year or two before his, his death, was saying, let me be clear, God does not love all men. Well, if that is true, then Jesus in this passage is telling us to do something that God doesn't do. He is calling us to a greater love than even God has. If God does not love all men, and we are told to love all, our neighbor and our enemy, then God is calling us to a greater love than his own. I have problems with that thought. God gave his son for this world, and world means world. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. God does not just love the elect. 
God loves all. He is good to all. And He is not calling us to a greater love than He has. He is love. And just as God must be just, God must love. Romans 5.8 says, that, but God demonstrates His own love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The same passage goes on to say, when we were enemies of God, He justified us through His blood. We need to keep in mind that evil is not merely the absence of good. That evil is an actual entity. Satan is evil. Paul said in Romans 7, there is evil in me. That's not just the absence of good. That is an actual entity. So the problem is more than just we need to insert good into the situation. The problem is that there is an, there is an, a, an entity of evil. And therefore, we will always have evil in this world until Jesus returns. And there will always be enemies. Evil is spiritual. It's not just relational, one person against another. It's important for us to remember, as David said in Psalm 23, he says, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So that means that God is able to care for us with enemies surrounding us. He doesn't always get rid of the enemies, but he will care for us when we are surrounded by enemies. Psalm 60, verse 11 says, God is the deliverer, not man. And that it is, it is vain to hope that deliverance will come from man. In the Psalms of Ascent, begins by saying, crying out for wanting to go to the, the temple to be with the Lord and His people. And the psalmist writes and he says, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, for I dwell among the tents of Kadar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You ever feel like that? I didn't ask Patsy for permission to say this, but... I, um, So maybe I shouldn't, but anyway. <laughs> I've said it before, and she's heard me say it. When our children were, were very little, um, and Patsy was feeling very overwhelmed, we had, most of you would know, four kids in four and a half years, and they were all by C-section. And, um, and the first was born when Patsy was 33, and so the last at 38, and it was a difficult time. And life wasn't working well. And there were two different occasions when I grabbed Patsy by the shoulders and looked her in the eye and said, I am your friend. I am not your enemy. And it kind of woke her up. Sometimes it feels like in your own home, you are for peace and they are for war. And everything that you say, as well intended as it might be, is taken as being words of warfare 
rather than words of peace. And so then the next verses in the following psalm, and these are all connected, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help come from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. We need to recognize that this is spiritual. That we need help. And our help does not come from man. When our hearts have been captivated by the evil of our enemy, and now we are playing the enemy, it gets so complicated and so confusing. Who's right? Who's wrong? And we have to come to Jesus. There was a while, a number of years ago, where the elders were talking to a couple, and, and they were wanting, it became very clear, they were wanting just to pile on the table all the sins of the spouse and see who had the bigger pile when it was all said and done. And we didn't put up with it. And we just said, this is not about seeing who's the bigger sinner here. But this is about your sin and your need for Jesus. And the only one who can help you here is Jesus. And you've got to recognize your own sin. Because when you can, justly or unjustly, when you have an enemy who hates you, we can sin because of the hatred, because of the enemy. It's been said that's what Job is about. Job did not suffer because of his sin, but Job sinned because of his suffering. And when we fail to love our enemy, we sin. The New Testament has a lot to say about our enemies persecuting us. Again, this chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the last of the Beatitudes, is about persecution. And we're told that persecution brings a blessing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But the condition for that kind of blessing is that we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and not just because we're difficult. Our attitude to persecution, again from Matthew 5, rejoice and be glad for your, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The commanded response to persecution is here, Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Our response to persecution can be a number of things. In Matthew 10, 23, it's flee. Whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. In 1 Corinthians 4, 12, the response is to bless the other person and to endure. We toil, working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. I find it interesting that though God has given us a ministry of reconciliation, when it comes to persecution, <clears throat> I don't see any mention of reconciliation. Because sometimes you cannot be reconciled with the persecuting enemy. Sometimes we need to flee. But we always <clears throat> should bless 
And sometimes we should just endure. Again, regarding persecution and our perspective in it, we're told if they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Also, <clears throat> when they persecute us, they are persecuting Jesus. In Acts 9, Kelly read from this, um, I guess not this morning, but I was thinking of this as he's talking about persecuting. He fell to the ground and heard a voice Saul, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So to persecute the believer in Jesus Christ is to persecute Christ. We must maintain the, the perspective that as difficult as it is and as much as we may feel Abandoned by God, he has not abandoned us. 2 Corinthians 4.9 says, um, <clears throat> We have been persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We should remember that the very message of the cross brings persecution. Galatians 5.11, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And then in chapter 6 of Galatians, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the sake of Christ. So preaching the cross of Christ brings persecution. We should not be surprised. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, <clears throat> all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is a promise. In Romans 12, 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child and to her descendants. So Satan is after God's people. The conclusion to all this is the enemy is God's servant in this way. He is God's servant in bringing exposure to God's life hidden within us and the need of the enemy for forgiveness. Jesus finished out this paragraph. I'll just go back to the text. And again, he says, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? If you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? God shows no distinction when it comes to blessing people. He blesses all, even the unrighteous. Isn't that amazing? He is good to all because God is good. When was the last time you saw the rain fall only on the fields of the righteous? Right at their fence lines. It just stops right there. It doesn't happen very often. When it rains on the righteous, it rains on the unrighteous. When it rains on the unrighteous, it rains on the righteous. The point is, God is good to all. He doesn't have his naughty and nice list, and he just leaves chunks of coal in the stockings of the naughty. 
He blesses all. He is good to all. And so perfection in this passage, in this context, is loving as God loves. Well, we aren't one way toward some people and another way toward others. Then anybody could say to you, there goes a man, there goes a woman who loves and loves all, no matter what is dished out toward them. Perfection is loving our enemies and doing good to them, even as we do for others. Perfection is being true to God in all our dealings with people, no matter how they deal with us. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ultimately, yes, that would mean there should be no hint of sin in our lives. But we're sinners, and nobody is without sin. But what God is after is that there would be such integrity, and the root word for the root essence of integrity is oneness, that every aspect of our being is consistent with God and consistent within ourselves. This is why Moses wrote and says, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then the very next verse, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The idea being is that there, is no, there are no diverse parts within God. He is a unity. He is a, he is, it, there is oneness with God. That, that he is one, not meaning that he is singular, but he is one that there is unity. He is unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is never, they're never at odds with each other. They're never, never at war with each other. There's perfect peace and harmony between the three. And our beings, what God is after is that we live at complete harmony within ourselves toward God in such a way that God is seen. So we don't just love our friends, we love all, even those who revile us, who despitefully use us, who slander us, and say all kinds of evil against us falsely. This is miraculous to do this. I think again, in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is bringing us to a point of saying, that's impossible. You don't know what my enemy has done to me. You don't know what it's like to live with this person, to work with this person day in and day out. They never let up. But it still stands. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love them. Pray for them. This is what Bonhoeffer said about praying for your enemies. I don't know exactly when he said this, I, try, I would think it is while he was imprisoned. He said, this is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Jesus does not promise that when we bless our enemies and do good to them, that they will not despitefully use and persecute us. They certainly will. But not even that can hurt or overcome us so long as we pray for them. For if we pray for them, we are taking their distress and poverty, their guilt and perdition upon ourselves and pleading to God for them. 
we are doing vicariously for them what they cannot do for themselves. Every insult they utter only serves to bind us more closely to God and to them. Their persecution of us only serves to bring them nearer to reconciliation with God and to further the triumphs of love. John Stott wrote about prayer also, interceding for our enemies. He says, intercession is the summit of Christian love. Oswald Chambers would say, this is where the real battle takes place. There is nothing harder than to intercede on behalf of others. Stock continues and says, moreover, if intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it is a means to increase our love as well. It is impossible to pray for somebody without loving him and impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. We must not, therefore, wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him, and we shall find our love break first into bud, then to blossom. Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayers for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? That's great. We pray for our enemies. We love our enemies. And through that, God works in our hearts to truly love them. Because one of the things that is accomplished in prayer, I find, is that as we persist in prayer, our prayers are refined, and more and more we're brought into the heart of God, and we learn how to pray according to God's mind and heart. And when you're praying according to God's mind and heart, the bitterness the spirit of, of resentment, it begins to fade away because those things are not in the heart of God, bitterness and resentment. And you become free, not from your enemy, but from the bitterness and resentment that his actions have engendered. One of my people ask me all the time, you know, What's a favorite movie you have? Often I'll say my first thing that comes to mind is Sandlot um, because that was my childhood growing up. There's so many things in that movie. Just That was growing up when I was a boy. But what really has made an impact on me are the two or three movies that I've seen um, of Les Miserables. I've never read the book. I saw my list of things I'd like to read. But it is a powerful, powerful story of redemption, right from the very beginning. So I wanted to just um, wrap up this sermon by just reading part of um, that book. Um, um, this is an adaptation of it from Victor Hugo. Jean Valjean was a woodchopper's son who, while very young, was left an orphan. 
His older sister brought him up, but when he was 17 years of age, his sister's husband died. And upon Jean came the labor of supporting her seven little children. Although a man of great strength, he found it very difficult to provide food for them at the poor trade he followed. One winter day, he was without work, and the children were crying for bread. They were nearly starved, and when he could withstand their entreaties no longer, he went out in the night and, breaking a baker's window with his fist, carried home a loaf of bread for the famished children. The next morning, he was arrested for stealing, his bleeding hand convicting him. For this crime, he was sent to the galleys with an iron collar riveted around his neck and with a chain attached, which bound him to his galley seat. Here he remained for years, then he tried to escape, but was caught, and three years were added to his sentence. Then he made a second attempt and also failed, the result of which was that he remained 19 years as a galley slave for stealing a single loaf of bread. When Jean left the prison, his heart was hardened. He felt like a wolf. His wrongs had embittered him, and he was more like an animal than a man. He came with every man's hand raised against him to the town where the good bishop lived. At the end, they would not receive him because they knew him to be an ex-convict and a dangerous man. Wherever he went, the knowledge of him went before, and everyone drove him away. They would not even allow him to sleep in a dog kennel or give him the food that they had saved for the dog. Everywhere he went, they cried, Be off! Go away! Or you will get a charge of shot. Finally, he wandered to the house of the good bishop, and a good man he was. For his duties as bishop, he received from the state 3,000 francs a year, but he gave away to the poor 2,800 francs of it. He was a simple, loving man with a great heart, who thought nothing of himself but loved everybody, and everybody loved him. Jean, when he entered the bishop's house, was a most forbidding and dangerous character, he shouted in a harsh, loud voice, Look here, I'm a galley slave. Here is my yellow passport. It says five years for robbery and 14 years for trying to escape. The man is very dangerous. Now that you know who I am, will you give me a little food and let me sleep in the stable? The good bishop said, Sit down and warm yourself. You will take supper with me, and after that, sleep here. Jean could hardly believe his senses. He was dumb with joy. He told the bishop that he had money and he could pay for his supper and lodging, but the priest said, you are welcome. This is not my house, but the house of Christ. Your name was known to me before you showed me your passport. You are my brother. After supper, the bishop took one of the silver candlesticks that he had received as a Christmas present and giving Jean the other led him to his room where a good bed was provided. In the middle of the night, Jean awoke with a hardened heart. He felt that the time had come to get revenge for all of his wrongs. He remembered the silver knives and forks that had been used for supper and made up his mind to steal them and go away in the night. So he took what he could find, sprang into the garden, and disappeared. When the bishop awoke, he saw his silver was gone. He said, I have been thinking for a long time that I ought not to keep the silver. I should have given it to the poor, and certainly this man was poor. At breakfast time, five soldiers brought Jean back to the bishop's house. When they entered, the bishop, looking at him, said, Oh, you're back again. I am glad to see you. I gave you the candlesticks, too, which are silver also, and will bring 40 francs. Why did you not take them? Jean was stunned by these words. So were the soldiers. 
This man told us the truth, did he? They cried. We thought he had stolen the silver and was running away, so we quickly arrested him. But the good bishop only said, it was a mistake to have him brought back. Let him go. This silver is his. I gave it to him. So the officers went away. Is it true? Jean whispered to the bishop, that I am free? I may go? Yes, he replied. But before you go, take your candlesticks. Jean trembled in every limb and took the candlesticks like one in a dream. Now, said the bishop, depart in peace, but do not go through the garden, for the front door is always open to you day and night. Jean looked as though he would faint. Then the bishop took his hand and said, never forget, you have promised me you would use the money to become an honest man. He did not remember having promised anything, but stood silent while the bishop continued solemnly, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. I have bought your soul for you. I withdrew it from black thoughts and the spirit of hate and gave it to God. God is the Redeemer. He judges. We understand. But at this time in history, he is wishing to redeem. And he redeems us through the love demonstrated, through the giving of his own son. And it is before us as Christ living in us to love as we've been loved. Not to return hate with hate, but to return love for hate. And in that, there is the hope of redemption. May not occur. It's not in our power. But we know retaliating, hate for hate, enmity for enmity, will never redeem. Love is not for the purpose of showing ourselves to be better, but it's showing Christ. Love is not for the purpose of showing ourselves better, but it's for the purpose of conquering the evil in our own hearts as well as the evil that's being demonstrated towards us. May God demonstrate the perfection of who he is in each of us, especially in regard to our enemies. I'll pray. Lord, I know that as these verses that I've read tell us that we will have enemies in this world. If we simply follow Jesus, we will be persecuted. We will be reviled, hated, falsely accused. It is not in us, Lord, to respond as you are saying. This is truly your life and not ours. We once again, God, can only yield ourselves to you in repentance, in brokenness, confessing, God, that we have not loved our enemies as you do. Too often, God, we are scoring the wrongs and keeping track and justifying ourselves as not 
having the obligation to love. And that is a lie. We ask God for your grace, for your enabling, that you, Lord, would love through us all. Well, into your glory. In Jesus' name.